Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Mutech Teacher Talk. I'm your host, Heath Jones. I'm also the founder of the Music Technology Teacher Network, www.mutechteachernet.com. Those of you who know me or who might be familiar with the website know that I founded the Music Technology Teacher Network with four goals in mind. Advocacy. First, to advocate for music technology programs in my home state, which is Georgia, but also around the country. Support by providing resources and answering questions and being available to help music technology teachers, but also to help students who want to learn how to create music using technology. Inspire, to encourage teachers and students to create music by teaching and showing how important it is to express yourself through music and how easy it can be to get started. And once you get started, you keep working on it and it gets better and better. And finally, create, because the end purpose of everything we do is to encourage people to create um, to create music, to express themselves, to communicate uh, using technology. So when I first founded the website and started working, that first uh, piece to advocate, I really wanted to encourage the growth and spread of music technology programs. And here in my home state of Georgia, we've seen a dramatic increase in the number of school systems who are offering music technology courses to their students in grades 6 through 12. I also reached out to the business industry here in Georgia, uh, music, entertainment, media, uh, to look for ways that they may be able to collaborate and support and help teachers who are trying to teach students how to create this way. And I found that the industry and business partners were really very um, eager and ready to partner with schools and with students to make this happen. The issue that we came up with is that here in Georgia, we have these rapidly uh, expanding uh, music technology programs, but we don't really have teachers who are trained or certified to teach uh, music this way through technology. So part of uh, the next part of my plan was to reach out to the university system here in the state, uh, those who are providing teacher certificates and music education degrees, to work with them on additions to their curriculum or resources so that students that are getting music education degrees would be better prepared to teach music technology. And that's where I really ran into a roadblock. Um, And I was really perplexed by that. So I began digging around to try to figure out why it was that we had this issue. It seems that our traditional Uh, music education programs as far as our college and university systems are so really ingrained in what they consider to be classical music or formal music. And they weren't eager at all to or felt like it was appropriate for them to move into the area of commercial music or informal music. On the other side, there are other schools out there where people can go and get trained to be recording engineers or music producers. And these are some really terrific schools also, but those schools really focus on teaching students the engineering side of sound recording and production and to how to operate a soundboard and how to use um, you know, inputs and buses and effects and all these techniques for recording. But even in those schools, they're not teaching 
students how to actually create music. So that was a real conundrum in trying to figure out, well, if our university system and traditional uh, music degrees didn't feel like it was their place to teach how to create music commercially or folk music or pop or hip hop or whatever you want to call it. And these other technical institutions that were teaching music production from the standpoint of being a recording engineer or uh, a mixer and, you know, learning about the microphones and all the techniques and, um, and acoustics of recording. Well, what's left for people that want to learn how to just make music in a very traditional way, in a way that's, that has really dominated uh, the 20th century and into the 21st century of music that's being created not only in America, but around the world. So this kind of led me on this quest to try to figure out, well, if we can't teach teachers how to teach people to create music this way, why is that? Why is there such a reluctance to uh, open this this area, this content area of, of music? And that led me to start digging back further and further. And the more I looked back, the further I kept digging to try to figure out what got us to where we are. So if you listen to part one of the podcast and you've actually come back uh, to part two, first of all, thank you for doing that. In part one, I went way back to the roots of things that were happening in, happening in European history and as far as the social and econo- uh, economic, uh, cultural influences of what was going on in music. In part two, I want to pick up and kind of switch back over to the other side of the Atlantic uh, into the United States, first uh, coming out of the, the American Revolution and then the American Civil War. So I'm looking at this part of post-Reconstruction in America all the way up until about 1950, because when we get to the 1950s, that's when a lot of these different threads I'm talking about really start to come together. And we began to get a picture of how all these different things actually led to where we are now. And if we understand how we got to where we are, then maybe that's going to help us think about some ways that we can maybe change what we're doing now. Uh, hopefully for the better uh, for our students, but also just for our citizens to for people, for humans to learn how to make music, because there's so many resources that are readily available uh, to people today that, that, that just weren't possible even just 10 years ago. So let's dig into part two of the podcast. So, again, we're going to pick up just after the Civil War. Uh, in America and what was going on. And there's so much history to cover during this period of American history, but for the purposes of the podcast, I'm going to try to avoid digging too deep into specific events. So, you know, the turn of the century was a time of dramatic social, economic, and technological change in the U.S. This time between Reconstruction and the birth of the Civil Rights Movement was a time of segregation and Jim Crow laws for African Americans, as well as a time of economic depression for the Southern states following the end of the Civil War. All the advancements in technology, education, and music must be viewed over the backdrop of the segregated South. The latter part of the 19th century saw an explosion of technological and electronic invention that still continues today. Alexander Bell and Thomas Watson began this breakthrough with the invention of the telephone in 1876, creating the ability to transmit sound electronically. 
the transmitter of the phone acting like a microphone and the receiver to hear the sound being the earliest speakers. And then Emil Berliner invents the first carbon fiber button microphone that was a superior design for transmitting sound. Bell would later purchase the rights for the design from Berliner to incorporate into his telephone. The following year, in 1877, Thomas Edison invents the phonograph, creating the ability to capture or record sound. Further inventions and improvements on these earliest designs would lead to to condenser, dynamic, and ribbon microphones that led to improved ways to transmit sound, along with innovations stemming from the phonograph as a means of capturing, storing, and sharing recordings. An Italian inventor named Marconi developed what he called the wireless telegraph, and broadcast the first successful transatlantic radio signal in 1901 that would eventually lead to the development of commercial radio. These early pioneers of audio invention would lead to a dramatic shift in how people accessed and experienced music and other information. One of the themes that I often return to is the idea that one of the primary purposes, or at least consequences, of electronic and now digital technology is breaking down the barriers of access to resources and information. Up until this time, and while these new technologies were in their early development, the only way for people to access music was to attend a live performance or to create music themselves. If you remember the earlier reference in part one of the first conservatories of music that were established in the United States, they were all concentrated in the Northeast and Upper Midwest. Consequently, that is also where the first professional orchestras were established. The New York Symphony in 1842, Boston in 1881, Chicago in 1891, Philadelphia in 1900, and Cleveland in 1918. All of the early conductors of these orchestras were from Europe, with appropriate Western European musical pedigrees. So, of course, the repertoire that they performed was solely Western European. There was a perception from early on in our country's founding that America was a rough, pioneering, and uncultured place. European art, music, and fashion was the cornerstone for the upper class seeking refinement, culture, and symbols of their status in American society. Meanwhile, in the South, they were still recovering from the ravages and scars of the Civil War. Former slaves struggled to make their way as free citizens in the South, while the rise of white supremacy groups sought to maintain their loss of control and power. The cultural trappings of Europe simply were not accessible to most of the population in the South. Consequently, the vast amount of music that they had access to was music in the church, and music that was created and performed according to their cultural backgrounds. This would give rise to the southern genres of music such as gospel, bluegrass, ragtime, Dixieland, Appalachian folk, and country western music. Now, a number of prominent colleges were established during the colonial period, the oldest among these being Harvard University, established in 1636. Most of these early colleges were private and established by wealthy benefactors. In 1801, the University of Georgia became the first state-chartered university in America. Though the university would technically be considered a public college, enrollment was not open for women or African Americans who were still enslaved at that point. Cheney University of Pennsylvania was established in 1837 as the first historically black college university, or HBCU. A number of other HBCUs would be established in the country through the end of the 19th century, but most of these schools were private. Two significant pieces of legislation would influence the development of colleges and universities in America in the late 19th century. The first was the Hatch Act of 1887. This act established agricultural experiment stations at land-grant colleges that were annually funded by the federal government. The second was the amended Morrill Act of 1890. 
the original Morrill Act passed in 1862 that allowed states to create land-grant colleges. The second act in 1890 allowed these land-grant colleges to be designated separate but equal for African Americans. The separate but equal designation would be applied broadly across the South, with many Southern states enacting segregationist laws such as designating white-only and colored-only passenger cars on railroad trains. One such law in Louisiana was challenged by Homer Plessy when he refused to move to the whites-only passenger car on a railroad trip from New Orleans to Covington. The case would eventually make it to the Supreme Court, who ruled in 1896 in the Plessy v. Ferguson case that separate but equal was not a violation of the Constitution. The result of this decision would be the rise of Jim Crow laws in the South, with segregation being the law of the land. Another result of this case would be the rapid rise of public HBCUs in the South. While there were still some private HBCUs established during this time, the majority of new HBCUs were now public, drawing federal funding from the Hatch Act of 1887. It's important to consider the development of higher education in America against the backdrop of the social, economic, and cultural influences of the time. Before the rise of democracy spurred on by the example of the scrappy new United States of America, people generally lived in a social and economic caste system with little opportunity to improve social or economic status. Keep in mind that artistic genre was not an indicator of status. Remember the Globe Theater and the great European opera houses. Everyone was attending the same plays and operas. They were listening to the same music. The social status was determined by where they sat in the venue. It isn't hard to imagine people down in the pit of the Globe Theater looking up to the aristocracy in the balcony and wanting a higher status for themselves. The rise of democracy tore down those barriers and created ladders for people to change their status, to move from the lower to the middle to the upper class. It's natural for people to want to establish their place in the social and cultural class of a society. In the North, attending formal concerts of quote, classical European music, or going to art museums and seeing great works of art, which would have been European works, or wearing the latest fashions or obtaining a college degree was a way to establish yourself in America's social and economic strata. Meanwhile, in the South, blacks and whites are struggling to come to terms with the total destruction of the previous social and economic structure. The region was economically devastated, and those with the means to partake in the cultural offerings of high society had little access to concert halls, museums, or the latest fashion. Education would be a way for people to climb their way up the social and economic ladder. But educational opportunities were limited by the realities of segregation in the South. As America continued to struggle through the turbulent years following Reconstruction, innovations in technology would continue. Italian inventor Marconi is credited for being the first person to successfully broadcast radio signals across the Atlantic Ocean. This would lead to further development of radio broadcasting. Much of the early growth and development in radio broadcasting would be private broadcasters, like the ham radio users of today. But economic innovation would soon discover the new technology. On November 2, 1920, KDKA would make the first commercial radio broadcast in America, kicking off the rise of commercial radio. These early radio stations focused primarily on sharing news reports, but radio companies would soon discover the potential use of radio as a source of in-home entertainment. With the rise of these companies broadcasting using these radio waves, the airways soon became crowded. 
Think about how you begin to lose a radio signal if you're traveling in a car. When more than one station is broadcasting on the same frequency, those frequencies interfere with each other. There were also government agencies in the military that were using radio to communicate, and it was important to keep these frequencies clear. The Federal Communications Commission was established in 1934 to regulate the rapidly crowding airways. During this early development in radio communications, many people would make their own radio transmitters and receivers using kits that could be purchased. Soon, companies would begin making radios designed for use in the home. Commercial radio stations began producing and broadcasting programming aimed at entertaining this new audience of listeners. Serial programs and dramas were broadcast along with news reports and music for people to tune into from their homes. There were approximately 60,000 radios in America in 1922. That number grew to 1.5 million in just a single year. In that same time, the number of commercial radio stations went from 28 to over 1,400 from 1922 to 1924. The next two decades will be referred to as the golden age of radio. Programming during this time was focused on news reports, again, serial dramas, think about like books on tape, and variety shows. The variety shows typically had a host that would introduce and interview celebrity guests, act out short skits, and feature a few musical performances. Think something like Saturday Night Live, but on the radio. Radio stations also began to cater to specific social and ethnic groups. The All Negro Hour radio show premiered in 1929 on WSBC in Chicago, hosted by Jack Cooper. Cooper and the show would later move to WJJD, that was a 50,000-watt clear channel station in Chicago, to expand the audience even further. Programming in southern states would reflect the social and cultural influences of Appalachia, the Mississippi Delta, and other musical traditions of the mostly rural and agricultural South. Music remained a minor part of radio programming at the time, while serial dramas and other news reports remained as the foundation. Nevertheless, I can imagine that this was also a time when exposure to cultural and economic differences and preferences between whites, blacks, upper, middle, and lower classes began to happen. These different groups had distinct musical traditions from folk, bluegrass, delta blues, country western. Various radio stations programming were aimed at these specific groups, but anyone could tune in by just turning the dial on the radio. While segregation and Jim Crow laws made social interaction taboo, the radio was used in the privacy of a person's home. People were able to cross these social boundaries using radio to discover maybe new perspectives and music that they may not have otherwise been exposed to. The mid-1940s would bring some major developments and changes to radio as well as American culture. 1945 saw the introduction of the television to American families. Television programmed very similar content as radio, with the added feature of now including a video image to go along with the sound. Many assumed that radio would become obsolete as the number of households with the television rapidly grew through the end of the decade. Yet, radio would persevere as the focus of its programming shifted from mostly serial dramas in the news to music. Advances such as the transistor and FM radio would continue to improve the quality and mobility of radio. The late 1940s also brought the development of suburban living in post-World War II America. This meant many more people were now commuting to work, and the radio became an essential component in every new car sold. While all these developments in radio and communication were exciting, accessibility was not equal for all citizens. 
FDR's New Deal promised to provide financial and housing support to assist American families recover from the Great Depression. Yet that support was often withheld from African Americans and other minorities, while segregation and Jim Crow were still the law of the land. The GI Bill, an economic boom following World War II, would create a new middle class in suburban America. But African Americans and other minorities were once again denied access to these resources. This created an exodus of white middle class families from urban centers leaving many minorities who were, de- who were denied access to these federal economic and housing resources concentrated in some of our largest cities. The GI Bill also provided money for veterans returning from World War II to pay for college, to learn new skills and knowledge, to establish a vocation or career to support their families. Yet, most of the well-resourced colleges and universities were still segregated and would not accept non-white applicants. HBCUs were already stretched thin because of lack of resources, and the influx of African-American applicants put further strain on these institutions. Many African-Americans who were turned away from white colleges were also rejected from HBCUs because they simply had reached full capacity for their enrollment. The growing unrest and dissatisfaction with African-American life in post-World War II America along with the introduction of one crucial new technology would set up a 10-year period of American history that would finalize the rift between classical and commercial music that is still in place today. So let's set the table. The end of World War II was a time for jubilation for the United States and the Allied forces. The war between the Allied and Axis powers was literally a fight for the future of the free world, and the freedom fighters won. Yet freedom, liberty, and democracy didn't mean that society was democratized. Not all veterans returning from Europe and the Pacific had access to the resources and support systems established by the GI Bill and the rapid rise of the suburban middle class. The return of military musicians who played a vital role in maintaining troop morale during the war, who then used the GI Bill to get education degrees, would create a huge expansion of school music programs across the U.S., Like every military post or naval group that had their own band, most every school or community across the country would have their own school band and orchestra. Bands in particular took on many of the traditions of their military roots with uniforms and ranks, like think about the drum major or having a band captain. These uniforms and ranks mirrored those of the United States Armed Forces. Though public high schools and HBCUs were still segregated, the band programs of both still reflected the influence of the military bands that most band directors came from. And then radio, it was at a crossroads. Television was on the rise and radio was facing the prospect of becoming largely irrelevant and an antiquated form of personal entertainment and access to news and other information in America. One result of Germany's surrender at the end of World War II was that all of the technological developments and inventions of German engineers became public domain. Allied soldiers were free to take most any of the spoils of war from Germany, especially if it wasn't of any great value, and send it back home. Major John Jack Mullen was a member of the United States Army Signal Corps during the war. After the war, he was assigned to a group whose mission was to investigate what Germany had been using and developing in the area of communications during the war. This would include radio, telegraph, radar. One of the devices that he discovered was something called a magnetophone and reels of red oxide tape. He made a report of the discovery to the Army, but also mailed two of these devices that he had found to his home back in the U.S. 
This discovery would be the thing that would save the radio, and the impact of Major Mullen's development of this new technology is still felt today every time we turn on the radio or stream music from our smartphones. Before Mullen introduced this new technology in the U.S., audio recording was done using magnetic wire. The wire was very thin and made of steel that had been magnetized. These wire recorders were capable of recording a single input source, and the audio fidelity of the recordings was really not very good. That made these devices pretty handy for recording a single source, such as for voice dictation, but were not particularly good for capturing music, especially being performed by multiple performers or larger ensembles. Duplicating these recordings on wax or vinyl discs did not result in a very satisfying audio experience, and there was very little that anyone could do to manipulate the recording once it was captured on the wire. Consequently, music on the radio was still dominated by live performance. Microphones had been developed that could capture multiple audio sources and then broadcast those signals on the radio with pretty decent audio fidelity. But playback of recorded audio was clearly inferior to live broadcast. The magnetophone that Major Mullen swiped from Germany and sent to himself back home was a recording device that used magnetic tape rather than magnetic wire. This tape was made of plastic and then coated with metallic dust that could then be magnetized. Because the tape was wider, it could capture more audio input. The magnetophone could capture multiple inputs at the same time. Another important difference is that the magnetic tape also allowed for overdubbing, meaning that you could record additional audio on top of previously recorded sound on the tape. When you re-recorded using steel wire, whatever had been previously recorded would just be wiped out. The discovery of magnetic tape resulted in the ability to manipulate the different inputs into the recording. The recording could be mixed to balance the levels and blend of the various tracks. Mullen worked on developing this new technology and learning how to use it to create recordings that were comparable in quality to live broadcasted sound. In 1946, Mullen took his discovery to a conference of radio engineers in San Francisco. At this conference, he switched between a live broadcast of a jazz band and a recording of a jazz band using the magnetophone. The attendees could not distinguish between the two. And this was huge. A year later, Mullen was contacted by Bing Crosby. Crosby was one of the biggest movie stars and performers in the United States, and he was known as a perfectionist, as an actor, a dancer, and a singer. He didn't like to perform on radio and especially disliked recording his music because the quality of the sound was so inferior to live performance. He wanted to try this new method of recording. Cosby would record a radio program on Mullen's tape in August of that year, resulting in the first radio broadcast utilizing this magnetic tape, and it was later broadcast in October of 1947. A company named Ampex would soon contact Mullen and develop the first commercially available tape recorder a year later in 1948. So much was going on in these years following World War II. The economy was booming for the emerging suburban middle class, but African Americans and other minorities were increasingly becoming more and more dissatisfied with being excluded from economic and educational opportunities due to segregation. Television was the new, bright, and shiny technological development for in-home entertainment and communication, pushing radio into obsolescence. Think about the arrival of the DVD and what it did to the videotape. 
Then, Major Mullen shows up with this new means of capturing and recording sound that was far superior to anything that had been possible before. While this may not have been a coordinated effort, the result of all these things would be one of the most radical shifts in the social, cultural, and economic fabric of the United States, and consequently the world. One of the most significant changes that tape recording brought to audio production was the fact that recording this way could be manipulated. Unlike the previous magnetic wire recordings that only allowed recording onto a single track, tape recording opened up previously unavailable options of combining multiple tracks to create a recording. There were no rules or standards to follow. This was basically this new tool and method of recording with no instruction book. Once this new technology became available, it found its way into the hands of creative artists who do what creatives do. They innovate. Les Paul is rightly credited for being one of, if not the founding pioneer of modern audio production. Before the Ampex tape recorder was invented, Paul was the inventor of the solid body electric guitar. This instrument was critical to the revolution that was about to happen with music in America. But that's another story for another time. When he got his hands on the tape recorder, he did the same thing that he did to create the electric guitar. He started to experiment and tinker with it. Paul was the first to experiment with overdubbing, meaning he would record himself playing his guitar and then go back and play another track on top of the previously recorded track. This might be the same part as the original, or he might be playing a different part to create counterpoint and harmony. The idea of one person performing multiple parts on the same recording was revolutionary. In addition, this layering of tracks created a depth and space to the recording that had never been heard before. He would go on to develop delay and phasing effects using tape recording also. Multi-track recording, overdubbing, delay, and phasing effects are very much still used in today's modern studios. As the record industry was about to be born, Les Paul's experiments and innovations in audio recording would create a highly specialized niche for, the, for a new kind of creative artist, the music producer. Many of the early greats can be identified by the sounds of the recording they produced. Through similar processes of experimentation and tinkering with the methods, techniques, and spaces that they recorded in, these producers created distinct and unique recordings of the musicians that they produced. Some of these early pioneers include Phil Spector, George Martin, Ahmet Erdogan, and Tom Dow, just to name a few. The technology for producing copies of recorded audio onto vinyl disc and record players to play these recorded sounds had been around for some time before the rise of the tape recorder and innovations in audio production. There was some time around the end of the 1940s where the size and speed of the records went through a process of becoming more standard and universal. I mean, think about uh, the whole beta versus VHS video uh, tape period of the early 80s or late 70s. Eventually, the 45 RPM record would become the standard for a single recording, and the 33.5 RPM LP, or albums, were used to record collections of songs by an artist. My point being that the technology for creating copies of these recordings onto records already existed. While the records were created and sold in the 1920s and 40s, radio was still the king and primary generator of revenue for the radio and recording companies. Yet, at just the time that it looked like radio would be made obsolete with the rise of television, innovation and serendipity would step in and give rise to the recording industry. Combine this with the social, economic, and cultural upheaval that was about to take place in the United States, as Sam Cooke would soon sing, a change indeed was about to come. I hope you'll tune in to part three of this podcast, 
where I'll pull all these things together to talk about the social and economic upheaval of the 1950s, how that went into the rebellions of the 1960s and created really permanently this kind of rift between what we now consider to be music that is taught as quote-unquote serious music at the college and university level versus music that is commercial in nature, like pop, rock, R&B, that for whatever reason is sort of looked down on as being, you know, commercial or informal or whatever the case may be. And please understand, through this podcast and this topic, I'm in no way trying to criticize or to downplay the importance of or legitimacy of classical music training. Learning how to play a violin or a trumpet and learning about the music of Mozart and Beethoven is highly valuable and great for those people and musicians that go to study that. My goal, though, is to find out why or how or what might be the benefit of teaching students to create music who maybe just aren't interested in playing a trumpet or a violin or for whatever reason don't feel like playing that kind of music or those instruments is culturally or socially relevant to them. Uh, can we find a way to not eliminate or downgrade our band, orchestra, and choir programs, but ultimately the goal is to include more students in learning how to create music, whether that music creation be through learning how to play an instrument uh, like a violin or a cello or a clarinet, or if it's learning how to manipulate a MIDI controller or to use a computer or to use an electric guitar uh, to create that kind of music. So I hope you come back for the conclusion and part three of this series. Once again, thanks for listening. This has been Heath, your host with the Music Technology Teacher Network, www.mutechteachernet.com, where our goal is to advocate, support, inspire, and create. Network. Network. Music. Technology. Teachers. Network. Music. Technology. Teachers. Network. Music. Tech. Teach. Music. Tech. Teach. Music. Tech. Teach. Music. Tech. Teach. Teachers. Network. Music. Technology. Teachers. Network. Music. Technology. Teachers. Network.